Elizabeth. No, Elizabeth. No, Elizabeth, don't. This is Left Unsupervised with Elizabeth Morales, your comedic host that's done it all. Actress, writer, director, producer, headdresser, bartender, beauty pitch, and organizer, rock and roll PR expert, talent coordinator, bookkeeper, hostess, makeup artist, wife, mother, and general badass. Now listen as she interviews all of her favorite celebrities, doctors, and entrepreneurs that she's met along the way. This week, Elizabeth is Left Unsupervised with her guest, Shane Snow. Oh my God, Macy, I'm so excited today. We have the coolest guest. He is a journalist and he's like a best-selling author, keynote speaker. Oh, cool. And he's done all kinds of like really cool social experiments and human behavior and business. I mean, he did this. Listen to this. It's so cool. He did uh-huh. this experiment where he only ate Halo ice cream for 10 days and wrote what? an article about what it. What happened to him? I don't know. I, I want to only eat ice cream it. for 10 days. If he if, lost... Well, if you didn't gain 50 pounds. Oh my, could you imagine <laughs> if he lost weight on this? We are so... Well, we would be down at Ralph's right now. Like, that would be everyone's new fad diet. Let's just shovel ice cream in our mouth and... Yeah. And the next... <laughs> Get ready Halo, for Halo, 10 season. days. That's all we need, Halo. 10 oh days. Oh my God, so. that's so cool. <laughs> Isn't that cool? I'm dying. And he does all these, like, sensory workshops. Uh-huh. And he puts all the sensories into the keynote speaking. It's really cool. I can't wait to talk to him and pick his brain a that's little bit so more. That's so interesting. I know. What a neat concept. So... If you could do one social experiment, right, what would you do? Oh, um, well, I don't know if this counts as like a social experiment. I'm right. not exactly sure what counts as a social experiment, but I would put all these hidden cameras all over my body. Okay. And then I would go into elevators in these big office buildings and face the opposite way uh-huh. and just like watch what people did, like see if it freaked them out, if they would like take off running or... Yeah, and I wouldn't say oh anything. I wouldn't make eye contact. I would just, like, enter and then stare straight ahead just, like, with a dead look on my face and see what people would do. Well, they would probably freak out because you people would. don't look at people anymore. <laughs> They'd be looking at their phones. <laughs> you, know, you don't like, like confined spaces. So if oh. I did that with you, you'd be like, oh, my God, we're going down. I'd be like, girl, what are you looking at? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'd be, like, freaking out. Oh, <laughs> you know, you know, we might have to do that now because that sounds pretty funny, actually, mm-hmm. to just see you walking in just deadpan face. Right? Like, I feel like if backwards. somebody did that to you and I in an elevator, like, you would be punching me. You'd be like, Macy, Macy, look, look, what's happening? <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I think that would be interesting. What would you do? Oh, my God. Okay, so I guess because this is a recent thing that happened to me, but I feel like these um, machines that they use to detect early stuff on women, like I just got my mammogram done. Oh. And I feel like it's my wish would be just to have a man's penis put into the mammogram machine oh, and squished like oh, okay. they do women's boobs <laughs> because the mammography, that's what it's called. Isn't it cute, mammography? It sounds cute, but it's not cute. It's not cute. It was invented by a man named Egan, the Egan Technique. and um, Look at you with all this research. Well, it's (laughs) just because I know I wanted to make sure that it was a man that invented this. So I really feel like a lot of stuff for women that's early detection, Uh if 
they did it the same for men, I think that they would find a different Better way. Better ways to do Oh, so really, <laughs> yes. you're being, like, you're not being sadistic. You're being a humanitarian. Exactly. You're helping all women. All women and all men, <laughs> schooling men on what it feels like to be a better husband and supportive of their women. <laughs> I'm sharing knowledge. <laughs> By squishing a penis. <laughs> In the mammogram machine. Well, you know, sometimes it just takes one really clear message to make change happen. So there you go. Yeah, I absolutely. Hey, I'm just trying to help men understand women a little bit better. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So I'm dying to hear Shane's social experiments and all the things that he's done. He sounds like such an interesting guy. He does. I can't wait to hear all about it. Yeah, let's go get him. All right, let's get him. Shane Snow is an award-winning journalist and best-selling author of the books Smart Cuts, The Breakthrough Power of Lateral Thinking, and Dream Team's working together without falling apart. He has been called a wonder kind by the New York Times and a digital maverick by Details Magazine, and his work insanely addicting by GQ. Shane is globally acclaimed keynote speaker who has written books about human behavior and business. Thank you so much for coming in, Shane. Hello. How Glad are to be you? Here. I'm fantastic. I'm so happy you're here. I feel so privileged because I knew you flew in. From New York. Specifically for this. Oh, I feel so privileged. Thank you. <laughs> but also for Disneyland. My first time at Disneyland yesterday. So that Shut was part up. of the yeah, part of the deal. Okay, well what was that like first time in Disney? Uh magical, I think is the, the word that I'm supposed to use. But magical? Yeah, I'd been to Six Flags uh-huh. and it definitely beats Six Flags. Okay, wait a minute. Where did you find magic in sitting in the line for two hours? Well, I think this is the reason why I can't ever go back to Disneyland <laughs> for a second time is it was this rare day where no one was there. So every line was like 10 minutes or less. So oh. it felt like our own amusement park. We actually joked about just like buying the place and, and living, you know, in the different wings of the amusement park. <laughs> it kind of felt like it was our own. Which was your favorite land? I like the Tomorrowland. Uh, I mean, the best ride for me, I think, was the Cars ride, like the one where you race around uh, in the desert. Uh I really like that aesthetic. (laughs) Uh, But Tomorrowland, uh, I'm really into space. You know, half my tattoos are space and astronomy themed. And, you know, my my dad was kind of an engineer. And and so I, I love that, especially sort of the retro future stuff. Right. Um, so I, yeah, I kind of geeked out over just the, the imagery there. Also the, uh, what is it called? The Astro Blast, we call it the Ass Blast, the Astro Blast. Uh, <laughs> the Ass Blast. <laughs> yeah, the Buzz Lightyear one. Yeah. Uh, that was great. Well, wow. Okay, well, I got to tell you, um, I'm going to Disney with you guys next time because it sounds like far better experience than when I go. I, you know, I And I love like Disney. Maybe this is what it's like every time. I don't know. Everyone loves it. So I, <laughs> surprisingly well, good time. Well, Shane, tell me a little bit about yourself um, and your family background. You, or is your family a small family, big family? How did you grow up and where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town in southeast Idaho, actually in a county in southeast Idaho. I'm the first of seven kids, so there were nine people wow. in our family, which is why we never went to Disneyland. Is imagine <laughs> nine people in a van driving down to California. I don't know how your parents could afford it. They didn't. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, even though my dad was an engineer, he uh, he worked on rockets first, hence the astronomy interest, and then he worked at a nuclear uh, power plant uh, test reactor and, uh, and so he was super smart, but, uh, you know, Idaho salaries and nine people in your family, between that, even if you're, you know, a nuclear engineer, you're still poor, you still have hand-me-downs. So it was kind of a, <laughs> a good juxtaposition of this sort of very cerebral upbringing, um, but also kind of the humble upbringing at the same time, uh, which I'm grateful for now. At the time, you know, it's all you know. Right. 
But but uh, I imagine growing up with so many um, siblings, like you have to make your mark, right, to get noticed. I'm an, like an only child. I have a brother, but he was older than me, so he moved out earlier. So was, all the focus was on me, and I was okay with that, right? Now you have seven, and you have to spread that focus. Did you have to do – did you feel like you had to do something over the top – to compete with your siblings <laughs> to get attention. Well, I had a natural advantage because I was the oldest. Oh, and okay. And kind of had to be the example and do things first and all that, which was sometimes brutal and sometimes great. I feel bad for, you know, for my siblings that were kind of in the middle that, you know, were easy to leave at the gas the station or whatever. <laughs> uh, but the the one thing that was the competition, well, besides I have a brother who's a year and three months younger than me. So right. like, we were really close together and he's taller than me and was since, you know, the beginning. So we had a problem with each other because of that. <laughs> uh, but the thing with seven kids is if there's ever anything good to eat in the kitchen, it is gone instantly. So you run, <laughs> you race and you fight and you literally claw each other to eat the ice cream. My poor parents like never had ice cream in you well, know, 18 cream. years. Now that you say that, I know that one of your experiments that you did was, was it seven days of ice cream for an experiment? Tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. Sounds crazy. So, okay. So I uh, I primarily see my identity as a journalist. Right. Um, I like to find out things and then write about them. And a lot of those have to do with human behavior and business. And once in a while, I do really random stories. And this was a really random story that no matter what, I could write the most important thing in the world, and it will never be nearly as popular as this article. It's the most popular thing I've ever written. It's a story for GQ about when I ate uh, only ice cream for 10 days. Right. But it was a special ice cream. It was Halo Top ice cream, which is everywhere now. But at the time, it was really rare. You had to order it special, and it was only in a couple of stores. But I had a friend here in L.A., and I came out to visit, and he showed me this ice cream. He's a trainer, and, like, really, you see his veins everywhere. And yes. he says— <laughs> He's popping. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, I eat a pint of this every day. And I said, Bullshit. And so he took me to the store, and I had someone. I was like, oh, this actually tastes like ice cream. And so it was this low-calorie, high-protein, high-fiber ice cream. Right. And so I did the math and figured out that I could eat five to six pints a day and still get sort of supermodel-level <laughs> calories. And so I did for 10 days, and uh, and so I wrote this did article. Did you lose or gain weight? I lost 9.9 pounds. Shut up. <laughs> yeah. I want the ice cream diet right now. So Halo, contact me. <laughs> <laughs> Hence why it was so popular. So I, I, I chronicled, you know, day by day what happened, and my trainer freaking out, and nutritionist telling me this is a bad idea, and then how I inexplicably didn't have stomach problems, but I did get canker sores, and I was deficient in all my vitamins. So I wrote that, and then I lost all this weight, and that's why this article blew up, because you can imagine, man eats only ice cream for 10 days, loses Hello. 10 pounds. <laughs> oh, my God. So that's the power of journalism. I learned that's, uh, you know, the uh, that story, there were all these articles of people seeing the ice cream diet, which, like, I was not advocating at all, but Halo Top has become this really big brand, and I think they were poised to blow up. But I interviewed the founders uh, a year and a half later, and they told me that that article in GQ was a turning point for their company. Oh, my God. Yeah. They went from like 10 gallons of ice cream a week that they were selling to like 100 gallons a day just after that article. The Something magic crazy. of yeah. journalism and marketing, right? Yeah. Because that's amazing. And also, you also wrote a story. You rode your bike. Correct me if I'm wrong. You rode your bike through Hawaii, and you started interviewing a bunch of homeless people that you ran across on your bike ride. Is that correct? So uh, so that's kind of the story. So when I, I moved to Hawaii to kind of figure out my life from Idaho, kind of figure out what I wanted to do. And at that point, I didn't realize that I could be a journalist for a career. Right. Um, even though I loved riding and it was a passion. Um, and so I started riding my bike around the island because I was too poor to afford a car. 
and <laughs> noticed that Hawaii is a very homeless friendly place. And and I, you know, strike up conversations with people wherever I go. And so I started talking to homeless people and I started writing this blog that I like now I feel kind of embarrassed of the name, but at the time when I was 21, it didn't seem offensive. I called it the bum diaries, uh, right. like the rum diaries. Um, and so I would interview these homeless people and I would tell their stories on my blog. And, uh, and it was fascinating because I wanted to know, you know, how do you, what, what does your life look like leading up to, you know, to losing your home? And then how do you deal with day-to-day life? And a lot of the homeless in Hawaii were actually homeless by choice. Um, so people that realized that, you know, it's warm and you can live in a hammock and you can work a little bit and you don't need to pay rent. And there were a lot of people who had been kind of forced out of their homes from gentrification or, you know, the rent went up and then they couldn't afford it. And so then they moved into hammocks. And the the state is very, uh, very friendly to this because they realize that it's, it's hard and it's also warm outside. And, you know, we didn't have houses in Hawaii for, you know, right. thousands of years. <laughs> uh, so it was really fascinating sort of lens on a human behavior and just character and, and people's stories. And that made me, it was one of the things that made me realize that I could actually pursue a career in journal, that I would, no matter if I was broke or not, that writing and doing what I loved was something that, that I decided I wanted to pursue. So it'd be fair to say that you're motivated by curiosity and human behavior. Absolutely. That's amazing. And so that was probably one of your first writings, correct? Like doing the blog. And then how did you know that this was a career that you wanted to do journalism? When I was in undergrad, I was studying uh, science and business. And one of my roommates was the editor of the newspaper. And I told him that how I always wanted to be a writer, but I knew that that wasn't a job. And he had said, well, you know, it's my job. Why don't you write for the newspaper? So I got a little, of experience, little bit of experience doing that. But I still had it in my head that it wasn't something viable. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it was through that experience of writing that blog in Hawaii that I, I realized that it was something that I could pursue as a career. I started looking at journalism schools. And, uh, and basically, I had the thought that I would go to journalism school and then come back to Hawaii and write for the newspaper because there were job openings there, basically. Right. And then I went to New York for, for journalism school and got pulled into that world and you know the media scene in New York is really incredible and you know the curiosity got the best of me and I stayed in New York for almost 10 years now. Well the universe had a bigger plan for you. Yeah. Because sometimes the universe has a bigger plan for us than we even can imagine for ourselves right? Yeah. So I also know that you have a company called Contently. Yes. Correct? Can you explain how this got started and, and what exactly is Contently and also I know you've won awards for it, too, so I'd love to hear about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't be shy. This is not a shy show. <laughs> okay. So this is, I think this is another example of, uh, you know, of the universe having different plans for you or just the value of being open to alternative possibilities, right? Right. Uh, growing up, I had sort of these railroad tracks of life sort of ahead of me that right. I thought was the path I was supposed to do and that a lot of people sort of encourage you to do because it's, it's safe and it's fulfilling and all that. But I didn't feel fulfilled sort of with that plan. And and going to Hawaii and then New York was sort of an example of me trying to break out a little bit of, you know, the expectations and then feeling more and more empowered to sort of go with the flow and things that that seemed interesting to pursue, knowing that I Finding could always go back. Finding your own voice, exactly. right? Yeah. So one of those things was as I graduated from journalism school, I was really good at hustling, you know, riding my bike around on an island, getting interviews, that kind of thing, doing entrepreneurial stuff, building websites for people to sort of support myself during school. I was good at that entrepreneurial hustle. And so I was making my way as a freelance journalist, writing for, you know, magazines and blogs and trying to work my way up the ladder. And I started having friends of mine from school and actually professors of mine who uh, were kind of caught in this 
thing that was going on in the journalism world, which was that more and more people were being laid off and uh, having to work as freelancers um, or you graduate school and you can't get a job and you have to freelance. And basically you have to be an entrepreneur, a salesperson, an accountant. And you have to do it all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I had friends coming to me who I knew were way better at the craft of journalism. I was a newbie, but worse at doing this thing. And I was being pretty successful. So I had friends come to me saying, you know, how do you build a website to display your portfolio? How do you get gigs? Um, you know, how do you do your taxes at the end of the year as a small business owner? And, uh, and I had one professor that this one was was pretty sort of crucial. I had a professor who was an editor at the New York Times. She got laid off from the New York Times and became a freelancer for the New York Times. And so had this sort of epiphany that there's this huge group of people, not just journalists, but creative people in general, being treated as a sort of variable cost by businesses that employed them. Right. And Interchangeable, too. Exactly. And that comes with that comes a lot of challenges. So I ended up co-founding a business with a couple of friends with the intent to help out these kind of creative people, help them find work, promote themselves, get paid, you know, do their taxes, all of that. Right. And we figured if we could help them do that, then we could basically become a newfangled agency, you know, talent agency or something like that. And it sort of metastasized into a software company where we started making tools for media companies and for marketers that wanted to do more conscious marketing, you know, telling stories rather than doing advertisements. And uh, and then um, and also more and more free tools to help creative people kind of make it on their own. So just mushroomed into this yeah. like bigger beyond what any of us kind of envisioned, and we went with it, and we learned a lot of things. And and I still use journalism and my curiosity as a way to help us grow that. So I would interview other entrepreneurs and successful business people, and uh, and write about innovation for the magazines that I wrote for as a freelancer still, but with the ulterior motive of learning what we could do to build our business. And, and I guess, you know, you asked about the awards. We spent a lot of time uh, as the company grew and we, you know, we ended up having over 100,000 freelancers in our network um, that we're giving tools to and helping find work for. And then um, over 100 full-time employees in New York and then employees kind of around the, the globe. And as that happened, we spent a lot of time thinking about culture and, you know, the place to work. And if you're going to be putting time in doing work, you may as well work with people you love and yeah. um, and grow while you're doing it and be happy to see everyone that you see. And uh, and so we ended up winning a bunch of awards for uh, best place to work in New York, best places to work in America, those kinds of things um, for because I think we we sacrificed some of the sort of profit and growth stuff to be right. more innovative on the people side, and I think in the long run that helped us out. But that that's the kind of stuff that uh, that we got known for, and what I personally am the most happy about because we started it wanting to help creative people put food on the table and and still do what they love without having to deal with kind of the the other stuff that's less fun. Well, and that's amazing, and that kind of shows how your mind works. Is you saw something that was missing, something needed for these artists or journalists that weren't there, and you became proactive to try to change that, and then it mushroomed into something that you didn't even expect. So that's really, really cool, Shane. Now, you have all these accomplishments, right, and awards, and bestseller, (laughs) and I'm sitting here in awe going, how the hell do you find time to do it all? You know, because it's not one book, it's several books. You're on a bestseller, you have awards, you have a company, you have a nonprofit, you travel, you speak. Oh my God, I'm exhausted. (laughs) How do you do it? Uh, So there's a couple of things. One is I, uh, I don't watch a lot of TV. I do. I have shows that I love, um, but I just stick to those. Um, I think part of it also is I, 
in my 20s, I didn't drink. So I grew up Mormon. My family's Mormon, and I, I don't do that anymore. But I kept, like, the good habits of not drinking. So it turns out you have a lot of time on your hands if you don't ever drink. So that, that ended up being a good— <laughs> Maybe that's what I need to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's why I'm accomplishing less now in my 30s. Uh, but so I, I, I spent a lot of my free time working on stuff, but also I think two things. One is I felt a lot like the— like the artist that goes home and paints because they love doing what they do. So I would I would work on the business during the day and I'd go home at night and on weekends and I would write because that's what is fun for me. Right. Um, so that it's just sort of a – I was able to subsidize the fun writing sort of stuff, the artistic stuff that often doesn't pay very well. I was able to subsidize that with the business stuff. So there's sort of an irony there. I make most of my money from business, not from journalism, even though that's what I love. But that helped. The other thing is – all of these threads that I've had going in my career kind of feed each other. I, I firmly believe that if you spend 100% of your time focused on one thing, you can be good at it, but you're not going to be necessarily innovative at it unless you explore other things outside of that. So Ooh, Yeah, I like that. So, yeah, Thank so all you. things being equal, the person who has an extra thing to add <clears throat> right. to the industry or the business is going to uh, have more potential to find something that no one's found. So what I kind of used the writing thing as an excuse to explore all sorts of things outside of, you know, our particular business. And uh, and so that way, um, you know, I, I had an ulterior motive. But once again, the writing helps keep me satisfied artistically, but Keeps then also feeds the business. And the business actually helps raise my profile so that I can get better writing opportunities and better interviews and all of that. The other stuff like the the nonprofit was sort of an outgrowth of the business wanting to do good with uh, with what we were doing, give back by funding stories that uh, that were sort of uh, newspapers are less able to afford. So investigations and giving voice to voiceless groups and things like that. Um, but I also, I think even stuff like the ice cream thing, or I, I'm really into urban exploring, you know, exploring abandoned buildings and things like that. In my mind, every time I'm spending time on those kinds of things, the excuse is there's going to be something from this that will eventually feed into my the rest of my career and my day job. And so that helps me to frame it as fun and uh, and as leisure time rather than uh, than than not. And so I, I think that's kind of how it seems like I have more time. We all have the same amount of hours in the day. I'm spending a lot of those hours on things that might be considered work, but because they're fun and because they feed the other stuff, it doesn't feel like it to me. Well, and I, I love this, uh, Shane, because you break that myth that you're either artist brain or business brain. And I hate that, that, that you got to be either or, right? I hate that too. So it drives me crazy because I consider myself an artist, but I also have a business side. And it's a balancing act, you know, but a lot of times people think if you're a good artist, you can't be a good business person and vice versa. And you're breaking that myth. And I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this because it is a way of thinking. I, I Thank you for saying that. I do think there's a lot of value in, you know, partnering with people who can, who have deep strengths in what you're not strong in. But I think there's even more value in exploring as much as you can so that you understand when you need other people in your process and so that you can make connections between the different things rather than being solely focused. I think even people who, well, I get, you know, my version of uh, of this uh, sort of gripe is in writing. People say, oh, well, I'm not a writer. 
And I say everyone is a storyteller. You know, we're, that's our brains are built for this. We right. all love great stories. So you are a writer. You can be. It's in you. So just saying I can't do that or I'm not that is actually not giving yourself credit for the potential you have. And I think it's that way with business and sort of the left brain, right brain thing. People tend to be more inclined one or the other. But it doesn't mean you don't have the capacity for both. We all have the capacity for both. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. I also want to get, because, you know, time is slipping by. I can sit here and talk to you all day. But I want to get to your number one business bestseller called Dream Teams. Sure. So the uh, the book came about is once again, I was, you know, I was doing this writing on the side and my role at the company had changed from someone who makes things to someone who hires people to make things and, and who tries to get them to not fight. Uh, essentially, that's sort of the crude way of putting it. Um, but I saw more and more my role being a, a facilitator of teams. And then just as I started being more of a grown up, I guess, I started seeing more and more of my interactions right. in my life as teamwork. So, you know, there's the roommate situation, there's the neighborhood, there's, you know, the country and society. Ooh, that's and, an interesting way of looking at things. Yeah, we don't think of ourselves as team humanity until no. the aliens show up, but we are <laughs> kind of a team, right? Yeah, we so are. We, and we don't think of Humankind. things that way. <laughs> and I think a lot in the last few years as, you know, the, the country is more divided and, you know, our countries are more divided. And uh, I think a lot of what the promise of social media to bring us together actually has helped us to sort of be more sort of against each other. And uh, and so I just started thinking about, well, in particular, one thing that sort of triggered wanting to write about this subject uh, more than just think about it is my dad worked in nuclear uh, power. Right. And I ended up at this science lecture where this guy, basically this scientist told me that uh, I don't need to worry about the robots or, you know, whatever, killing us because we're going to blow ourselves up with nukes anytime. <laughs> and, you know, and I was kind of freaked out by this. And then so he's a psychic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this guy turned out to be the director of the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute. Oh, my God. So I interviewed him because I had to find out what this was about. And basically his institute is in charge of figuring out what could wipe out human mankind. And then they briefed the United Nations on it. So this guy whose job is to know these things said it's extremely likely we're going to blow ourselves up with nukes. The very same technology that my dad used to put food on the table and sort of there's this promise of energy being cheaper and all that. Right. And so I, I kind of for a while started obsessing over this idea that we all these people came together, these scientists put their heads together from all different walks of life all over the world, years and years and years of sharing research to harness the atom. And not too many years later, we turn it into a bomb. And it turns out that our differences that helped us to develop that technology are the same thing that makes us want to use that technology on each other. And that really troubled me. And then I saw that kind of nuclear analogy in my company of people who were very different than each other having all this potential, but that was also why they had problems. And then the same thing in our neighborhoods and in my family and everything else. So that's kind of what I wanted to write about is this paradox, I guess, of humanity, which is that we are so much smarter together, potentially, but usually we slow each other down. Usually... If we're, we're not all, careful. We're our own worst enemy. We're our own worst enemy. Yeah. So Dream Teams is about the psychology and the neuroscience of what we know about human collaboration, especially in recent years. That kind of turns what we think it means to be to get along on its head. And uh, and a lot of fascinating stories that I found throughout history of, of sort of the missing people, the missing teammates in these great sort of advances that we made as humans and also the uh, the subtle psychology of, of how working together to make progress to break through is different than what we usually think of working together or getting along or trying not to fight. 
And uh, and so that's what the book ended up being about. And yeah, and it, it did really well because I think it struck a chord. Not too at this shabby. Time. Yeah. Number one business bestseller. <laughs> I want to ask you really quick one more before sure. we move on because we're going to play a little game and bring some fun in here. Um, I want to talk about your nonprofit Hatch mm-hmm. Institute. Can you give us a little a brief um, description of what it is? Yeah. So this was uh, our way of uh, we looked around and we said, you know, we're providing jobs for journalists and for photographers and other creative people who are helping media companies and brands tell stories. But you know what's the important, most important kind of stories out there are the ones that uh, are sort of inherently unprofitable or unadvertisable. You know, no one wants to put their ad next to the story about the orphanage fire. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, no brand wants to do sponsored content investigating the corruption in the mayor's office. And uh, and those stories are really important. So we we basically started uh, raising money and going after grants and um, and basically put together this nonprofit to fund when a freelance journalist has a story that they want to investigate. You know, pollution in the water in their local town, or right. we did this crazy story about inadvertent victims in the gun trafficking trade on the East Coast. Oh my God! Um, women who are being pressured by uh, by their boyfriends or you know, gangs to be these uh, gun runners sort of at uh, at the threat of their lives or their kids or whatever. And there's crazy stories like that that are important stories that uh, that take a lot of time that, you know, sort of the opposite of what you see in the news cycle now where you can't do it fast. You have to spend six months on it. So therefore right. it's costly. So we wanted to fund those stories just because if that goes away, I think we lose a lot. And, you know, well, our... and it's true journalism. It's yeah. nobody's, you know, it, it's heartfelt. It's not. I think manipulated by agendas. Yeah, and being funded by a nonprofit means that they're yeah that's it's completely independent, which is you know like there's a, a lot of distrust in uh, you know in information and news these days. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay, Shane. Well, listen, if you don't mind, I would like to play a little game with you called hashtag fake news, oh. and I would like to invite <laughs> your lovely girlfriend who's in the booth watching, and my friend Sylvia to join us. Excellent. So um, let's get Macy and Sylvia in here. Hashtag fake news. All right. Thank you guys for playing along with me on hashtag fake news today. I am excited to try to stump our journalist. A little nervous. Uh, Thanks Uh for letting me crash your interview, guys. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. You didn't know you'd be playing a game, huh? Nope. All right. Well, let me explain how it works. Okay, so I'm going to read you um, two news headlines. And one is real and one is fake. And you guys are going to pick out which is the fake news. Okay. Okay. All right. You ready? All right. Got it. All right. News headline number one. A Florida security guard was fired for uploading his explosive fart videos to Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) So that's news headline. Security guard. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, That's headline number one. Let me read you number two. A uh, woman sued Samsung after getting cell phones stuck in her vagina. Oh, oh farts and vagina. Let's yeah, see. well. That's a, new, that's a new booty call right there. Those are the things that come up when you Google Inside. crazy news. That's not how you're supposed to take those pictures, lady. Okay. Huh. All right, so which is the fake news? The farting Instagram security guard or Samsung's cell phone in vagina? What do you think? I so? want to see some non-friendly competition okay. between well, male and female. What if we have the same answer? Okay, so... Well, there can be multiple winners or multiple losers. Here's the okay. thing. So <laughs> if 
it's Florida. I feel like they're pretty lax about farts. Um, I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> the fartiest state I, in the union. Is. Is. <laughs> <laughs> like no, I also like to do that because Elizabeth, you know, Florida. Babe. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> like, the, I, flo- I follow Florida Man on Twitter, which is all the headlines that say Florida Man did this. And I believe <laughs> in every crime that happened, every weird crime that happens in Florida. Right. So I think that one's a real one. You think that one's a real one? All right. You know what? I'm going to just... I'm going to go with the the woman who sued Samsung because it was not a vagina-friendly phone. Okay, so that's the fake news. That's the fake news. Can, can we ask what news. size of phone it was? Because I'm just <laughs> like, I'm skeptical that the S8 Plus would you know, fit in a standard vagina. Maybe it was one of those like, old Nokias or something. He's a security guard, though. Like, do they really care? Like, security guard for what? Like, Kmart? They're like, oh, no fart videos allowed. I don't know. I'm going to go with vagina. <laughs> okay, so phone. vagina's fake. Shane? Yes. Florida. Florida's fake for you? Florida's fake. Okay, and Elizabeth? Anything in Florida that you read is real as far as (laughs) I'm concerned. Okay, so for you also, that means which one is fake? The cell phone? Uh, The cell phone. Okay. All right, I have two winners, and it is Sylvia and Elizabeth, which almost never happens. (laughs) Yes, the Samsung is indeed fake news. Estrogen dominates in this room. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I just, you know. But the the Florida security guard, just in case you're wondering, his Instagram has completely taken off, and he's gone viral. So I think he's okay, even though he got fired. You know what? I'm going to have to look it up again. (laughs) Wait, so. All right, fart man. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for playing along with me on hashtag fake news, and I will catch you all next week. Drinks on you, Shane. (laughs) So, Shane, talk to us a little bit about um, when you do your keynote speaking. I am obsessed with what I read, and I want you to explain this to me. So I hear that you do this interactive sensory experience when you're doing these keynote speaking. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? So a lot of keynote speeches are just a guy with a PowerPoint, right? And um, that can be fine, but started doing this thing with this crazy micro, uh, crazy biochemist. Mm -hmm. And um, he is German and kind of looks apart, wears a lab coat, kind of has long blonde hair. (laughs) And he and I do this sort of dual show where he creates these crazy concoctions of things that shouldn't be combined, but when they are combined, they're delicious or they're they're uh, sort of strange. Like this uh, this one he does is this little drop you put on your tongue that makes your whole mouth feel carbonated for eight minutes. Oh, my God. And it's God. from this crushed flower. And so he will uh, – what I'll do is I'll talk about human chemistry and the different principles of, uh, of dream teams, and then he will talk about – you know, whatever this next concoction is, and it will line up with uh, with what I just talked about. And we go back and forth, and basically people get drunk, and uh, and they also get to eat edible foam and try these crazy cocktails, and um, and then wow. also learn a little bit. So for me, it's more fun. Um, but that's that's the kind of thing that uh, that I, I like to do. Those sorts of things that are a little bit different, help people explore something new rather than sit in their seat and uh, and kind of just take in yet another PowerPoint presentation. Well, yeah, the fact that you're getting all the sensories involved into the presentation, I think is brilliant. I really love that. I think it's great. This guy, you should definitely check him out on Instagram. It's Alex Ott, O-T-T, science. And uh, he does uh, stuff for NASA. He does sense for Tom Ford. His Instagram is crazy. He does all these uh, these kind of celebrity uh, 
sort of cocktail party things. Uh, but he's also this uh, scientist, so a super cool guy. Oh, my God, that is so amazing. I love it. Shane, you're a very innovative man. <laughs> <laughs> I have one last question to ask you. It's a little game that I play with everybody. But before I do that, could you please plug your social media? It's just at Shane Snow on Twitter. My website is shanesnow.com. You can kind of find everything else from there. Okay. Well, my last question is this. If you were left unsupervised and nobody can see you or hear you, what would you do at NASA? So I have a rocket tattoo on my left arm. I have an astrolabe, a Galilean starfinder. Um, on the other side of that arm, I'm obsessed with space. And so I would love to be left unsupervised at NASA. <laughs> I think I would want to play with everything. But I think the first thing I would try and do is find the files where they have the info on Area 51 and the aliens. I just want to know what's real and what's not in that category. So if no one was going to see me, then I would I would bust open all of the old files in like the darkest sort of hallway where it looks like this is the stuff they don't want you to see. Ooh, I like that answer, the dark deep secrets exposed. <laughs> I also say that if, if I were ever to become president by some miracle, everyone else gets blown up and I'm the president, the very first thing I would say is show me the alien stuff. Like, that's all I want to know. <laughs> Before we get to anything, I need to know if we have alien yeah, friends. what's real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Shane, thank you so much for coming. I feel privileged again that you stopped in just from New York to do the podcast. So thank you so much. Have a safe trip. And dude, I can't wait to read your book more. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Left Unsupervised. Don't forget to stalk us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Left Unsupervised Podcast. We'll catch you guys next week. Thanks for listening.